As we develop systems that spit out coherent, plausible language, the AI community is once again wrestling with questions like, can language models refer? Which is exactly the title of a recent paper by Matthew Mandelkern and Tal Lindzen. We've considered a few questions like this on previous episodes of this podcast, but I wanted to speak with someone whose primary focus is the philosophy of language, to understand how this all comes together. My guest today is Harvey Lederman, a philosopher at UT Austin whose interests span topics in areas including the philosophy of language, the philosophy of action, and the moral metaphysics of Wang Yangming. We discussed Harvey's work on the metaphysics of propositional attitudes, the semantics of propositional attitude reports, and an interesting issue that arises with Frege's distinction between sense and reference that I mentioned earlier. Finally, we dove into his new paper with Kyle Mahowald that considers Alison Gopnik's idea of LLMs as a cultural technology, or bibliotechnism. An important thing to focus on here is the question, can we explain the behavior of large language models without attributing agency to them? I hope that in addition to providing some interesting perspectives on the reference question as it pertains to language models, this episode gives you a glimpse into some of the questions a philosopher of language thinks about. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, or if you are new, you may or may not know that The Gradient is a project run by a few engineers and grad students. The podcast is, at the moment, a one-person effort. If you like what we're doing, it would mean a lot to us and to me if you'd consider supporting us by either writing a review wherever you're listening to this podcast or upgrading to a paid subscription on Substack. But now... Without further ado, Harvey Lederman. Harvey, I like to start these conversations always a little bit biographical with a little bit about the guest's background. And I want to build up to some of the work you've been doing recently, but just to get us started, how did you get interested in philosophy generally in the first place? And then some of the questions that you think about now and over your career. I think I have a weird story about how I came to philosophy, not so uncommon, but a little bit strange. Uh, I was a classics major as an undergraduate, and I actually did not take any courses in contemporary analytic philosophy, uh, which is quite unusual for people who end up being <laughs> faculty members in uh, philosophy. Um, I was very interested in literature, and I was interested in comparative literature. So I started as an undergraduate also to study uh, Chinese and classical Chinese, which I did fairly intensively at that time. I then went to graduate school and did two years of classics graduate school, actually. Um, and uh, while I was there, I started to study ancient philosophy seriously. And in the course of that time, I realized that, um, well, first of all, I discovered Aristotle, which really blew my mind. I was so uh, interested in uh, pretty much all parts of Aristotle, but especially Aristotle's physics. And in fact, my first paper uh, is about Aristotle's physics. Um, and uh, I think as I got deeper and deeper into that, I got more and more interested, not just in what Aristotle thought about certain philosophical questions, but in what the answers to those philosophical questions were. Um, and so I started to consider the possibility of going to graduate school in philosophy, 
um, which was a new departure for me. You know, I hadn't been in a philosophy department. Um, and uh, there's a sort of longer story to tell, but I ended up doing that. Um, and uh, as I made that move from uh, classical philosophy to contemporary philosophy, I got particularly interested in a set of questions about uh, joint agency, kind of social agency, questions that you might think of as associated with game theory and that I was uh, studying in connection to tools uh, from uh, game theory. Um, and also relatedly in how conversations work, uh, because those are instances of kind of joint uh, activity. Um, and that led me into a bunch of further questions, some of them about the, about the nature of rationality, uh, because uh, the models and the sort of theories that I was interested in of joint agency were uh, predicated on particular accounts of individual agency. So how, how would people do things together or do things in competition with each other? Well, it depended in part on how they would do things alone. Uh, and so I became interested in accounts of that. And that made me very interested in some sort of foundational concepts, things like uh, belief, knowledge, uh, rationality, that are the central topics in epistemology, at the same time as never losing interest in questions about how conversations unfold and uh, how those are relevant uh, also to these questions about uh, sort of basic individual notions. I want to get on to talking about some of your specific work. And the first paper I had in mind was this really interesting one on higher order metaphysics and propositional attitudes. And I did some searching around and found a tweet that you wrote about this paper where you said that this is the paper of yours that you're probably the least happy with because you weren't satisfied with how you managed to make the central challenge precise. And I can definitely see that there's like this, this is a really difficult question that's being wrestled with in this paper. But I guess by way of introduction, I'm curious maybe to, to hear you expand on that and kind of get into how you started thinking about the questions in this paper. So, uh, you know, I, I told you a little bit, I'll answer the last part first, and then maybe we can work up to why I'm not totally satisfied with this paper. Um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I started out by working on uh, topics about uh, sort of rationality among groups, uh, how people uh, relate strategically to each other, but also in particular, how they coordinate with each other. And one uh, thing that I became interested in was the extent to which various mathematical models that we use of rational agents are idealizations, are uh, applicable to people. Now, this is certainly, I'm not the person to discover this question. There's been an enormous uh, amount of discussion in economic theory about, you know, in part, connected to the so-called behavioral revolution uh, of the 1970s about the extent to which these abstract models of uh, rationality uh, connect to the psychology of humans. But as I became more interested in those questions, I became very interested in foundational questions about the nature of belief uh, and desire. So you can think of the sort of basic subjective expected utility model uh, that people think of as the sort of touchstone in economics um, and in the theories of rationality that I was most interested in as having two ingredients. One is uh, the subject's beliefs, uh, which are usually represented by a probability distribution. 
And uh, these beliefs, I think in English, we usually report them by saying, oh, well, I think thus and such is going to happen. I mean, you know, n these days everyone talks about P doom and I'm sure on your show, everyone's familiar with that. So people are used to thinking in terms of probabilities as reflecting their beliefs. But most people uh, don't talk about that. Most people talk about what they think is going to happen and they don't assign it uh, precise probabilities. Indeed, you kind of sound like an alien uh, if you do that, except in a, in a very particular uh, community. And uh, the second ingredient are uh, a representation of the agent's utilities, uh, which we can think of as what a person wants um, to various degrees. So there's a kind of what, what people think and what they want uh, go together to make up this particular model of uh, rational agency. Now, if you start to think about, well, what is it that uh, people think and want? Uh, this can quickly become a very confusing question. So one question is just what's the nature of uh, this kind of state that I've described using these intu intuitive terms. Uh, so people often talk about the nature of belief, the nature of wanting. And in philosophy, these things are, call are typically classed under so-called propositional attitudes. Um, so basically, these verbs that uh, take that clauses are typically thought to correspond to, or, you know, a select set of them that describe the mind are typically thought to correspond to a sort of unified set of psychological states. So just to give a sort of class of them, you know, you can believe that something is going to happen tomorrow. You can fear that something is going to happen tomorrow. You can hope that something is going to happen tomorrow. Um, want is a bit weird. We don't usually say want that, but people usually give it, put it in this class anyway. Intend is similar to want, but people usually put it in this class anyway. So just to give you a sense of the sort of range of states. Now, there, there's this question about the nature of these states, like what are they and, and why should we care about them and what is it for people to have them? And maybe we'll come back to that in connection to, uh, you know, enormous literature now on uh, the question of whether uh, modern LLMs have, have these uh, states. But um, there's one kind of question that I've been particularly interested in, which is what is it that we want uh, or think or hope or fear or, or know? Um, and I'll try to motivate that question a little bit for you. So if I say uh, that I know that, um, you know, Inter Milan will win today um, in their game, uh, it seems like there's a thing that I know, namely that Inter Milan uh, will win today. So there's, but there, there's this thing that Inter Milan will win today. But also, like, you can think about it just a bit more. You can say, I hope that Inter Milan will win today. And maybe someone else will say, I fear that Inter Milan will win today. And then we can easily infer from that that the thing that I hope is something that they fear. Uh, so it seems like I can say, well, there's a thing that I, that I hope will happen and that they fear will happen, namely that Inter Milan will win today. Now, there's a kind of amazing fact about this. I mean, suppose Inter Milan loses. Well, then the world doesn't provide an object that our wanting or hoping or fearing could be related to. So in many cases, you know, if I kick a table, then I stand in a relationship to that particular table. Uh, I stand in this relation of uh, having kicked uh, to the table uh, that exists in the world. And that's very easy to explain. There's a relation between me and the table. But in this case, uh, I stand in a relationship to an entity that is very mysterious. I stand in the wanting relationship or the hoping relationship or the fearing relationship or the knowing relationship to this entity that is uh, somewhat bizarre. And especially if the event doesn't happen, there's a great 
sort of conundrum. Uh, what is this uh, thing that uh, I hope and that you fear uh, that uh, can somehow be the object or the content, as we might put it, of our attitudes, of our hoping, our fearing, but that is somehow not exhibited um, in the world? And this is a very longstanding question going back to uh, the founders of sort of so-called analytic philosophy. I said I was skeptical of those words, but, uh, you know, Frege and Russell were deeply concerned and Wittgenstein were, were concerned uh, early on about this about this question. Um, but it's a question that uh, I've been very interested in recently. I guess that just gets us to the setup of the paper, but maybe we can talk about it in more detail uh, later. Yeah, yeah. So I guess by way of setup, there are a few different things that I want to go into here. You brought up the question of, so the example you use in your paper, I guess, as opposed to this example, is that if Alice believes that some rabbits can speak, then we have this entity, some rabbits can speak. And it's weird to conceptualize at least what what in the world is this entity as you motivated? This is kind of mysterious. And we're sort of interested in a lot of a lot of things about how propositional attitudes towards these entities might work. And one thing you bring up early in the paper is kind of your interest in people who sort of take a language seriously as a reflection of the world and take its syntax to correspond in an important way to reality. And so for this higher order metaphysician, that is to say for, for a syntactic type, there's a corresponding ontological category. And this kind of relates to the some rabbits can speak, what is like the category that this picks out in the world. And so could you speak maybe a little bit to just unpacking what's going on there? And how you think about, again, this question of these syntactic types, the reflection of things out there in the world. I think this also speaks to some much broader questions as well. But I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So I think it can sound like you're an insane person if you say, uh, you know, take a language to correspond to the world or something like that. So let me try to say uh, a little bit just to motivate that general idea and then try to say a little bit about what higher order metaphysics uh, is and, and how it offers an answer to the question. I uh, was discussing a minute ago. So if you think about, you know, theories of in physics or something are uh, couched in a particular mathematical cum uh, English language. So someone writes down a theory. Um, it, there's a little bit maybe of a question of what the theory is. In some cases, it's just a set of equations and you can point to it and you can say, you know, those are the equations. In other cases, maybe we haven't figured out what the equations are. People are still working on it. You know, string theory is a bit like that. People maybe there isn't a, an exact thing that you can point to. In fact, maybe some of the sort of intuitive ideas that people have haven't yet been nailed down into an exact mathematical form uh, at all. Um, but uh, in these cases, we're taking the uh, symbols of our language to correspond to the world in a very direct way. So I think that's at a very fundamental level. People are saying, you know, well, this term is talking about, uh, you know, uh, space time or some particles or whatever it's talking about. Um, and I think uh, so that's a model at the very ground level for how you might think about how language corresponds to reality and how we might think like, oh, when you're writing down these theories, I mean, it would be a disaster if there were sort of parameters in the thing that didn't correspond to, to reality. I mean, the whole, the whole project is to try to give uh, a description of reality. Now, the 
higher order metaphysics is a view, is an approach to metaphysics that involves, uh, well, it's a little controversial what it involves, but I'll describe it in the following way. It involves taking, it involves developing a new language and then claiming that that new language uh, corresponds to reality in a very particular way. So I started with the example of these theories in physics because I think that's a helpful example of a case where it's not that you grew up speaking that language. Uh, so as people and you know many different researchers have developed these uh, this formalism and developed this language, they've kind of given it a meaning over time. And so these are new invented. I mean, at a certain point, they were invented symbols, uh, but they were able to have this meaning where they corresponded to reality. And now, in some cases, they're our best description uh, of uh, how reality at a fundamental level works. So higher order metaphysics is a similar approach, the idea that we can extend or just start fresh with a certain kind of language that will describe reality in a more perspicuous way than uh, our than English or uh, even some other kinds of formal languages. Now, of course, it's not supposed to be a replacement to fundamental theories in physics, it's supposed to be compatible with physics, but it's supposed to be an extension of uh, those ideas. And in particular, the kind of problem that is motivating these uh, the introduction of these theories, or let's say uh, the excitement about these theories, is uh, our problems about uh, what we might uh, what problems about properties and propositions and uh, things like this, uh, which I'll explain now. So there's been a really long-standing problem uh, in all philosophy that I know of, uh, including the Chinese tradition, the Indian tradition, and uh, the European tradition, uh, that uh, about um, the nature of what are sometimes called universals. Uh, so uh, maybe listeners are most familiar with uh, Plato's reflections on this topic, where Plato thought that there were these forms in heaven and the way that things got their properties or the explanation of things having their various properties had to do with their participation in these forms. So if you ask, you know, why uh, is uh, my shirt blue, it would be arguably because it participates in the form of blueness. It's a little bit unclear unclear whether Plato thought there were forms of those things, that doesn't really matter for our purpose. But the, the key point is that Plato thought that there was this thing, blueness, that was floating around in what philosophers like to call Plato's heaven. Um, and uh, I mean, it's unclear whether it actually had any spatial location or anything like that, but it's a sort of semi-abstract object that is somehow plays an explanatory role uh, for properties in the material world. Now, I think uh, maybe you, maybe your listeners will think, what? There's a, there is a form of blueness. What are you talking about? Where is it? What, kind, what are its features? You know, how do we know that it's out there? Things like that. So you can see immediately that uh, this kind of theory of properties, uh, which is blueness and how blueness gets instantiated in objects in the world, is very confusing and uh, very kind of hard to think about. Now, many philosophers uh, love that view. Uh, so, you know, it's not that uh, no one out there um, is a fan of this view, but it seems like we would like a theory that explains uh, what this, what these words like blueness refer to, or what is blue, how it works uh, in uh, 
in the universe that doesn't commit us to there being an object <laughs> that is uh, this kind of you know sphere floating in uh, Plato's heaven of uh, perfect blueness. And that's not the only motivation for uh, higher order metaphysics. I'm sure some of my best friends in higher order metaphysics will dislike this way of motivating it. But I think a way in is to think that we would like a language that allows us to perspicuously describe uh, features of these properties in the world, like is blue, in a way that doesn't commit us to thinking that there are these objects. Um, so we'd like to be a bit neutral, but still be able to reason systematically about uh, these kind of is blue and so on. So a language that allows us to do this uh, is uh, these uh, higher order logics, which are in, in this case familiar from the so-called simple theory of types. And uh, these languages have a kind of complicated history, which I'm actually not an expert in. But uh, Frege himself was already working in a kind of species of, uh, in the 1890s, was already working, and before, was already working in a species of what we now call these uh, higher order languages. But basically, the higher order languages are uh, similar to uh, first order logic, except they allow quantification over uh, different argument places. So in first order logic, you can say something like there exists an x, fx, um, and that's a smaller case uh, variable. And in most of, or in a lot of mathematics, that's the kind of quantification that people are familiar with. Um, and that might correspond to like, you know, there exists a, a rabbit. Um, you know, we might say F just stands for rabbit or something. And so there exists an x, uh, x is a rabbit uh, would be the thing that we're interested in. Um, but a different thing uh, would be uh, if we want to quantify also over is a rabbit. And that's exactly what I was saying before that, uh, you know, when Plato talks about uh, blueness, he's thinking there's this object, uh, blueness. And so he would write that the same way, like there exists an X. Um, I mean, Plato didn't have these languages. So when I say he would write it, I'm not really saying that Plato would have said this, but, but the thought is somehow that Plato would have said this uh, in the same way that uh, there exists an X, X is a form of blueness or something like that. Um, but the higher order approach is to treat these as a sort of irreducible, uh, different form of quantification. So um, if there's uh, a rabbit, we can say uh, there exists an F, uh, A is F. <laughs> and so that would correspond to like there exists is a rabbit, A is a rabbit. And uh, maybe a good way to motivate this sort of thing is uh, if you think of two people who are teachers. So, uh, you know, Mary is a teacher and John is a teacher. Then you can think, well, there's something that Mary and John both are. And so in our formal language, we would write this as there exists an F, FM, and FJ, uh, where now we're quantifying over uh, these Fs. So that's a second order uh, quantification, which allows us to quantify over these properties directly, and crucially allows us to do so without assuming that they belong to the same uh, category the same category in an important sense, or the same domain as the first order objects. So we can quantify over the first order objects, but we can also quantify into the position of uh, syntactic expressions like is a rabbit in such a way uh, that we can you know, make sense of there exists F, uh, FA, and uh, FB, um, that sort of form. And in the higher order logics that uh, 
metaphysicians have been interested in recently, you can do this uh, for every syntactic type in a well-defined language. I myself don't believe that that second kind of quantification is possible in English. I gave you some examples like, uh, you know, uh, there's Mary is a teacher and John is a teacher, so there is something that Mary and John both are, where that's supposed to be an English example of quantification into a predicate position. But I don't think that uh, you can quantify into much higher types in English. It's very hard uh, to make sense of what's being said. So the, the systematic languages of these uh, higher order logics are things that uh, allow us to do that in a very uh, rigorous, uh, rigid way. Yeah, I, I really liked, actually, I, I found the formalism in your paper very helpful for thinking about this, surprisingly to me. And I guess for me, having really liked taking programming languages courses in college and, you know, type theory is something that a lot of computer scientists get interested in. I thought that this kind of gave me a bit of a blast for the past. And I definitely encourage anybody who also has a bit of a background on this to actually go in and read the paper and look at all this, because it definitely does place restrictions of, like, if you have certain types so i guess an, an example of like i don't know bob is the name of a cat and then like is a cat is this other thing right and then we say that bob is of type e and then is a cat is an expression of type like e arrow t or something then i know i can put those things together but i can't put two expressions of type e arrow t together and so there, there's a lot of restrictions here which is really helpful to think about this Exactly. Yeah, I worry that without a blackboard, your listeners are going to be, you know, driving off the road trying to visualize what we're talking about. But uh, I hope uh, it's not too unclear. Watch this one with a notebook in hand or, or listen to this with a notebook in hand, I think is the right thing to do. I want to talk about a couple of the, the features of a language and the ways you think about them that come up in this paper. And the first one is actually a little bit high level. You talk about in, in section four about this idea of of justifying the claim that higher order languages are, quote, meaningful and not vague. And I just want to ask how you think about working out the answer to a question like that. That is a hard question. Um, and I think that really gets to this thing that we deferred earlier that I was hoping I wouldn't have to talk about, about why I'm unhappy uh, with this paper. Uh, I want to just say one comment that picks up on an earlier thread before I come to this question. So I sort of introduced what a higher order language is, but I didn't say that much about what it means for it to correspond to the world, uh, even though I spent a long time trying to motivate that idea with you know, physics and English. Um, so as we have been discussing, there are these syntactic restrictions on uh, various uh, quantifier on, on how different expressions can compose. And there are also um, these uh, sort of quantifiers that are different quantifiers for different syntactic positions. So when I say uh, there is an X, X is a rabbit, that's a different quantifier than when I say there is a thing that John and Mary, or there is an F that John and Mary are. So I shouldn't say a thing uh, there. And uh, when we say that, the, or when I say in this paper, trying to describe this vision that I think higher order metaphysics is getting at, uh, that uh, the higher order metaphysician as I envisage them is taking this language seriously. What I mean is that those syntactic restrictions are for them supposed to correspond to features of uh, the world. So there are features of the um, of whatever the entity is red is uh, that make it so that is red can't go together with is blue. 
those are the kinds of entities they are. Now, when I say that those are the kinds of entities they are, I'm not necessarily, I, I don't want to be saying the thing that uh, I was, well, it wasn't ridiculing, but that I was uh, mentioning sounds crazy uh, in Plato uh, before that there's this kind of, you know, circle of blueness floating in Plato's heaven. Um, I I want instead to be thinking, well, we don't really know what these entities are supposed to be and uh, it's sort of our project to figure out what, what we uh, can say about them. So all of this stuff about uh, the uh, taking the language seriously, I think is an important part of the metaphysical vision of uh, higher order metaphysics. So the, the higher order language is just a tool for reasoning abstractly about properties and the corresponding logic. I mean, the language itself doesn't tell you how to reason. The logic that the language is endowed with tells you uh, how to reason about it. Uh, but then the it becomes a metaphysical theory when we start to take seriously what it's saying um, about uh, the world. So then you ask, well, what does it mean to say that it's meaningful and not uh, extremely vague, which is the sort of topic of this paper? So meaningful, I think, is uh, not a big deal. I mean, sometimes when, or it's not hard to explain, sometimes when you introduce new symbols into the world, uh, you succeed and you create a new meaningful language, and sometimes you fail. Uh, so uh, you can imagine sitting down and just trying to write a uh, formal language down, and then you find out that uh, actually the way that you wrote down the syntax was totally incoherent, uh, and it didn't work out. I'm sure you've done exercises in a programming languages class where that happened to you, right? Uh, so you wouldn't then go away and think, oh, look at this uh, meaningful programming language uh, that I made. You might have failed because just the syntax didn't work out. It was poorly defined. Uh, the strings you know, didn't work. Anyway, you, you, you can think of a case like that. Um, and uh, so you know, we want to ask whether when we introduce this language to this higher order language, whether we've succeeded in an important sense. So have we made it so that the language hooks up with the world in the right way that the symbols we're using have a meaning? Now, it might not be, you know, the, we don't have to take a stand on the nature of the meaning of every expression uh, to say something like that. It could be that some of the meanings of some of the expressions are characterized by their inferential role. I'm sure we'll talk about things like that uh, a bit later. But uh, it's certainly, basically, you want to know, have I done my, my job to set things up in the right way? So uh, sometimes things may have meanings, but not the meanings you wanted them to have. Uh, that can happen to you, even when you're introducing uh, a sort of mathematical language, like maybe just to take a case that I know nothing about, but that seems like it's probably possible, someone might introduce a, a theory in physics and think, oh, this describes the world. And then it turns out that actually it's just a mathematical object. It doesn't really relate to features of the world. So they thought that what they were doing was describing the world. Instead, maybe they've introduced a new kind of mathematical object. And so the, the, the theory has a different meaning than they thought it had. Um, they sort of failed in an important way to endow it with meaning, but it still has meaning uh, in, a, in a different sense. It just describes this different sort of object. Um, so the kind of failing to have meaning would be uh, an even more dramatic failure where you don't describe anything. You don't even describe, uh, you know, the you know, maybe your theory is so inconsistent that uh, nobody can even think about it uh, or something. The question about extreme vagueness is a much harder thing to pin down and something that I think might be uh, less familiar to uh, your listeners. So I think, um, so philosophers in general think that English, as an example, is very vague, but they mean vague in a very precise 
way, or we mean vague in a very precise way. Um, so uh, the a paradigmatic example of vagueness, although some people will contest whether this is a characterization or even uh, a useful intro to the notion of vagueness, but I'll still use it here, is uh, the paradox of the Sorites. And this is a very ancient paradox about uh, a heap. So the premises of this paradox say that if you add one grain of sand uh, to a pile of uh, grains of sand, you don't uh, make a non-heap into a heap because uh, just adding one grain of sand can't make the difference between something being a non-heap and uh, being a heap. But zero grains of sand are not a heap, whereas inf infinitely, you know, or whatever, 5,000 grains of sand, uh, maybe that's not enough. I don't really know that much about grains of sand. 5,000 grains of sand uh, probably are a heap. So uh, somewhere in between, it seems like we have to somehow get from non-heap to heap, but it seems like no particular heap, uh, no particular grain can make the difference. And so uh, the thought is that this word heap must be vague in its application to some of these intermediate cases. You know, if you consider uh, just uh, 13 grains of sand, question, is that a heap? The thought is, if someone asks you that, it'd be like, well, I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of heap-like if they're stacked in a particular way, but it's also really, it would be weird to tell you that it is a heap because it's really not that many. So words like heap are vague. But philosophers think that actually tons of terms in English are vague in this way, that there are these borderline cases where you find it weird to talk about. Uh, whether it satisfies the example, uh, or this, it satisfies the term or not. So color terms in general are like this. There are plenty of things in your life that uh, if someone asks you, is that green? You'd be like, well, I don't really want to tell you because you know then you'll think that it's this other kind of green. Um, or you can think of examples that, uh, you know, of a table that are kind of, they are a table uh, if you look at it one way, uh, they aren't a table if you look at it another way. Uh, and so it feels very awkward to just say, and, and many philosophers think, you know, these kinds of vagueness are just totally pervasive. They're all over the map. Um, and one thing that can uh, happen um, in introducing a formal language is that you don't put enough constraints on the meaning of the uh, introduced expressions for them to be non-vague. It may just be really indeterminate how they apply to various cases in the world. Um, and the thought is that uh, maybe when these formal languages in higher order metaphysics are introduced, they too are extremely vague in this way. Maybe there are so few constraints on how this language gets interpreted that uh, it's unclear what we mean when we say, or it's maybe clear in some sense what we mean when we use expressions of this language. But when we actually consider, you know, sort of specific applications, we'll say, well, I don't know how to apply it uh, to this case uh, or not to this case. And in general, it's vagueness isn't a problem. I mean, we use vague terms all the time in our lives, and indeed they have great importance to us. I think the word belief that I mentioned before as a fundamental and deeply important word is extremely vague. And that's part of what's challenging in developing a theory of it. But it doesn't create any problems for us in normal life. You know, we, we, we talk about what people think uh, all the time and there's, and there's no trouble. And similarly with words like good or uh, happy or things like that, or old, I mean, it may matter to you a lot uh, whether you're bald, uh, but that, that's still a vague term. Uh, and so, you know, it can even be to things that are significant uh, to us. Don't worry, you're nowhere close, I can, I can tell.
but uh, you know, there are there are things like this that are vague words that are very uh, that matter a lot to us. But I take it that the ambition of the of higher order metaphysics in general is to provide a very exact theory of the universe. And so if certain key terms turned out to be vague or in the way that I put it in the paper, extremely vague, that would be uh, a failing of the, of the theory. It would not then have done enough to help us describe the world. Yeah. And one of the things that comes up in this paper a few times is what I think of as maybe another motivation or, or the stakes of this question of meaningfulness or vagueness. And I think we've kind of introduced this in a couple of places, but some of the ways you put it, and maybe this can be an opportunity to introduce one of the particular de- desirable features of this language, which is, I think on page 18, you talk about how giving up something that you term atomic congruence is undesirable because importantly, we lose a tool for answering key deep questions like Goodman's question, how fine-grained is reality, which is probably a pretty interesting question to interpret on its own. But I'd love for you to expand a little bit on how some of the sort of desirable features of these languages, their meaningfulness, their vagueness kind of contribute to some of these really deep questions and philosophy that we might be interested in answering. Wow, you really got very deep into this paper. I'm very impressed by your... uh... Your close friend. I think uh, a key question in higher order metaphysics and involves something that I haven't talked that much about yet, but which I'll now say a word about, which is uh, higher order identity. So I've talked a lot about quantification at these different uh, over, you know, into these different syntactic places, or as I've put it picturesquely, although I'm a little bit uh, nervous about this way of putting it, you know, over these sort of different categories of entities. But in addition to being able to quantify over these uh, different categories of entity, we can also talk about identity among them. So for example, we can ask whether is red is identical to is blue. Now, in the formalism that we use in higher order metaphysics or in these kind of higher order logics, that identity symbol can't be used between two objects. So if we ask if I'm identical to you, assuming we're both objects, not properties or something, uh, then uh, that would be a different uh, uh, identity, a different kind, a, a different uh, identity symbol and maybe a different no, a different uh, you know relation in the universe uh, than the one that holds between is red and is blue, but they have certain crucial structural components in common. Uh, for example, they both presumably allow that you know identical things have all the same properties. Uh, they both presumably uh, are uh, reflexive relations, so that things bear them to themselves. They're presumably transitive and so on. But um, When we start to ask questions at these higher uh, levels, we realize that there's this array of challenging, but also fascinating and potentially fundamental questions about the nature of reality that are very hard to answer. I mean, uh, it's pretty clear to me, probably clear to you, that is red is distinct from is blue. I mean, (laughs) there are some things that are red and, and not blue, but there are other questions that feel very hard to answer, like, is uh, is red identical to is red and is red? 
So if when I say that, uh, you know, this jacket is red and this jacket, you know, is that an identical claim, that sentence, is that identical to uh, the jacket is red and the jacket is red? I don't know. Hard question. Um, and it seems like we can, f- we, well, sorry, it doesn't seem like we can, in fact, formulate directly these questions very explicitly uh, in the uh, higher order language, and they arise very naturally. Um, but the problem is that uh, answering them requires that we know what we're talking about in an important sense. We don't want it to be the case like, oh, you can speak just one way where you say that is red is identical to is red and is, and is red. And we can speak another way where they're distinct. And both ways are perfectly fine ways of, of speaking. Because uh, that would mean that we weren't really addressing a fundamental question about the nature of reality. We were just legislating some weird fact about a formal language. So insofar as these are metaphysical theories, we want it to be that the language is specifically, uh, you know, is, is sufficiently well specified that there's an answer to those questions. Otherwise, we're just uh, floating around in the dark, uh, doing some weird game with uh, the languages that we are, you know, trading, as it were, insights about, but not really addressing a deep question about reality. So the challenge I was trying to pose in the paper, somewhat unsuccessfully, I would say, was uh, the idea that um, maybe these languages, given certain assumptions, are so poor, are, are, are so underspecified that there may not be a determinate answer to the kinds of questions that other uh, theorists in this area have been taking to be fundamental and, and really uh, deep questions. Yeah, that's really helpful. Another aspect of these languages I want to ask you about, and this is maybe a, a last question for this paper. I realize we've been spending a lot of time on this paper, but I guess it's just so interesting and I've had so many questions about it, is there's kind of two things you said that stuck out to me. And, and one of them is sort of about a way to maybe, how do I describe this? Like respond and and think about the reading of one of the sentences you introduce in this paper and you call it A and I need to find where A is defined so I can remember what the sentence says. I, I recall like it had to do with Hesperus and Phosphorus and that these are co-referring names. And what we are interested in is the fact that like in our theory of the mental content of a person who maybe has a belief about Hesperus, but not about Phosphorus, these refer to the same thing, but like it's possible intuitively for somebody to believe something about Hesperus, but not believe something about Phosphorus, because this person does not realize that these two things actually like co-refer. And one of the interesting things about this is you note towards the end of the paper that you're sort of talking about a plausible theory of English and how we might respond to some certain objections here. And you say, if we understand our intuitions of mental content to be based on judgments of of English sentences, I find that really interesting because especially in another part towards the end, you talk about there are there's a notion of, of context sensitivity when it comes to um, speakers of a language and the fact that maybe we could imagine speakers of like a non-context sensitive language and how that would be different from some of the intuitions that you and I have about sentences like Bob believes something about Hesperus and something different about Phosphorus. And so it's just interesting to me to, to think about the notion that we could have a totally different language that is maybe not context sensitive or not English and that this could really affect the ways in which we intuit what 
the mental content somebody has looks like. And this is like a maybe a very broad, vague, not well-defined question, but I'm just kind of curious to to hear you think a little bit about to what extent our intuitions about mental content maybe are based on judgments of English sentences. And then if you have any thoughts on what the possible available differences are in how we could judge mental content, if I'm, I'm like failing to, to make this question, you know, a, a good like full one, but um, hopefully some of like the motivations there make sense. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think that there's one way of thinking about mental content where you think, um, look, why is language relevant at all? Uh, we do cognitive science, uh, and that's what tells us about uh, the attitudes that people have and the behaviors that we use to, or, or the sort of, and the, and the attitudes that we attribute to people in order to predict their behavior. Um, and so uh, it doesn't really matter how people talk about it in English or Turkish or uh, whatever, uh, the question is, what is our scientific theory of people going to say about what attitudes they have? And I think that there's uh, certainly an important project there, which is, uh, I mean, <laughs> a very deep and important project there, which is to understand how to give a theory, a high level theory of behavior and uh in terms of various kinds of categories that we are partly inventing, partly discovering as we figure out what's useful uh, to predict at this appropriate level, various people's behavior. And in, in the context of that investigation, someone might use the word belief and use the word desire, but they don't really care about what those words meant originally in English. They are just using those words in the same way that you might use the word group in mathematics. It's not that you're like, oh, here's my analysis of, you know, mo most groups that I'm aware of don't have operations defined on them. You know, they're, they're just, uh, you know, four or five people who hang out together or something. Uh, so, so you're just using stipulatively this word belief to define the new category that you're interested in, um, in that case. And th there's a pure project there that I have, in, to some extent, little to say about. But there are different uh, questions that you might have about how people represent other people. So when psychologists study theory of mind in people and in animals, they're interested in how it is that, in my mind, I'm somehow representing what's going on with you. Um, and the categories that I use there might be quite different from the stipulative categories that uh, people are using in the sort of purely scientific enterprise. Those aren't just stipulated categories of belief and desire. We have to be a bit responsive to how people themselves are uh, representing it. Now, the way that we're representing it, as it were, implicitly, might be quite different than the way that those realizations are realized in language, than, than those uh, sort of representations are realized in language. It might be that actually, like, I have a little box for some aspect of you that doesn't correspond to any word of English or, for that matter, any word in natural language. In fact, that might be your sort of starting hypothesis. But a different way of thinking about it is, well, why did we end up speaking languages like this? It seems that 
you know, many languages in the world, even those which are historically unrelated, have certain classes of these verbal expressions for describing aspects of people's minds. And presumably that corresponds to some sort of need that people had to talk about those aspects of people's minds. So there does seem to be some relationship between uh, belief and desire in the theory of mind kind of sense. Or there's a there's a sort of proposed idea that there should be some relationship between that and the way that those things are realized in English. Now, there's a question of what we're studying. I've just given you three different notions of belief and desire. One, the thing that's realized in English or other natural languages. Um, and uh, one, the theory of mind notion. And then the third, this kind of cognitive science notion, which is, I don't know, maybe, in, you know, discovered slash invented in a, in a different process as we figure out what's useful for predicting uh, organisms like ours. Now, it seems like one, one question we can just ask is, well, what are philosophers most interested in? And I think the answer is, depends on who you talk to. So some philosophers are actually most interested in the thing that's realized in English. So they're interested in what we're talking about when we write novels about other people's minds. We're interested in what we're talking about when we have those deep, you know, debrief conversations after a bad, uh, you know, friendship event or something like that. that. That's what we're interested in understanding. We're interested in understanding this kind of social practice also of talking about each other other's minds. A different kind of philosopher is most interested in the theory of mind thing. They're, they're most interested in trying to understand how it is that we conceptualize other people, regardless of how we talk about it. And a third kind of person is a really don't care about either of those, of those issues and is most interested in the kind of cognitive science notion. So I am a bit unusual in uh, this landscape, or I would say most philosophers of mind are not that interested or maybe that's too strong. I would say many philosophers of mind are not that interested in the way that these things are realized in English. Um, but I am very interested in the way that things are realized in English. I'm not really a philosopher of mind. I'm, I'm not at all a philosopher of mind. I'm a, a primarily a, uh, well, I'm primarily many things, but in this particular domain, I'm, I'm coming at these questions from the philosophy of language. But I think that the questions about how we talk about belief, desire, and so on are deeply related at least to the theory of mind sense of belief, desire, and so on. And I think that those questions are important and that we need to be responsive to uh, natural language when we talk about these, these ideas because um, the philosophical puzzles, the basic philosophical puzzles about belief, desire, and so on are posed using English. So if you want to solve a puzzle that is posed using a particular language, you have to, in some sense, address what the terms of that problem, uh, what the terms of the formulation of the problem mean. Um, and so if you just go off and you say, oh, well, here's my theory of what the cognitive scientists are going to discover eventually when they uh, you know, give a better theory of uh, human behavior, then you won't have addressed a basic puzzle that you started with about belief as it's used in English. So the sort of hard examples uh, of you know, thinking, desiring, and how that relates to behavior that started me thinking about these problems are questions that are related to the way that we talk to each other about these uh, notions, and maybe a bit related to the theory of mind notion. So I think there's a close connection. I, I suspect there's going to be a close connection between those things. I'm not an expert on the empirical uh, data of this, but I'm investigating one side of this question, and I hope it eventually, you know, hooks up with the way that people are thinking about theory of mind. Um, but uh, my 
I think that uh, the, to solve the philosophical problems, we need to think in part, at least, and, and maybe quite deeply about the way that uh, these things are realized in natural languages. So that was a very long-winded answer, but I hope it addresses some of the questions that were behind your uh, remark. I think it absolutely does. Yeah. Having badgered you a lot about this paper, I think we should probably move on to some of your other work here because there's still a, a fair amount to discuss. And the next paper I had in mind was this really interesting one on perspectivism, where we're again kind of encountered with something that is sort of Frege inspired again. And the sentence that you ask us to consider is Lois knows that Superman flies, but she doesn't know that Clark flies. And there's a, again, kind of different ways to handle what exactly is going on here, because from one perspective of, of what knowledge is, it's obvious or seems obvious that if Lois knows that Superman flies, then she does know that Clark flies because Clark is Superman. But then from another perspective, we're thinking about the intuitions of, of Lois's internal mental content. And from that perspective, maybe you have a different conclusion here. Could you perhaps introduce some of the, the challenges here and then the way you've approached this problem, problems about the sentence in this paper? Yeah. So um, there's a, this, as you mentioned, a classic discussion in Frege um, in a paper called On Sense and Reference. I mean, it has a German title, but that's what people uh, refer to it in English as. And um, uh, Frege, uh, Frege's discussion has inspired a lot of different discussions in philosophy. And so there's even kind of controversy about what it means to say, uh, you know, Frege's puzzle uh, and what the real puzzle is, what the sort of core issue is. But I, I've been interested in one aspect of it. So Frege observes that there's something quite confusing about identity statements uh, in particular uh, which is that if you take uh, a sentence like uh, phosphorus is phosphorus, uh, or in this case, let's do Superman and, and Clark Kent, if you take a sentence like Superman is Superman, this just seems obvious. I mean, everyone should know uh, that Superman is Superman. But uh, it's a little confusing because the sentence Superman is Clark Kent is like a sentence that could be an amazing revelation. Indeed, uh, it is uh, in the uh, story, that it's a huge revelation to many people that Superman is Clark Kent. But as you observed, it seems like, how could that be a real uh, revelation? Because since Superman is Clark Kent, isn't the claim that Superman is Superman the very same claim as Superman is Clark Kent? Um, and I want to just bring this back to something I was talking about in the higher order metaphysics to give a sense for the, the unity of these various projects, because I think maybe someone listening to this will think, wow, this is just chaos. You know, why are all these things related? I, I mentioned before this question about, you know, is the, is the property is red identical to the property is blue? Um, and now I want to say, well, this is actually a very similar claim about the identity of sentences, as you might as we might put it, or the identity of whatever is expressed by sentences. The question is, is it true that Superman is Superman is identical to uh, Superman is Clark Kent? So here we have a higher order, as it were, uh, a, I mean, a higher order identity between these uh, two sentences. And uh, part of the question here is, uh, are these two things identical? So one facet of uh, Frege's puzzle, which is what this is often called, is this question about the identity of those two claims. And one way that I think 
is maybe helpful to understand what's going on is that uh, you might have had a starting theory of um, of these claims where really what was going on was they were uh, they sort of featured the underlying object. So somehow uh, when I say, you know, uh, Superman is Superman, that's a claim about that guy, the relation of identity and that guy again. And that's all there is really at the underlying, uh, at the bottom level. Uh, and then uh, you might think, well, then Superman is Clark Kent. Really what that is, is it's about that guy, the relation of identity and that guy. But that kind of way of thinking about it, because Clark Kent is Superman, when I say that guy the second time in both of those cases, they're the same guy uh, or whatever, the same alien. I can't really remember about his uh, uh, status. Um, so the, those two claims ought to be uh, really the same if you're just thinking in this object-driven way. And then you don't have a, a theory of how it is that um, these claims seem to express different things or seem to have this different, what's often called cognitive significance for us, that learning the one is quite different uh, from learning the other. So in the paper uh, that you're talking about, Perspectivism, uh, I and a co-author, Jeremy Goodman, uh, who's now at Johns Hopkins, um, were uh, trying to explore how far we could go with a particular approach to this uh, problem, which preserves the basic kind of object-driven account that uh, you that I was just mentioning. Um, now, we're certainly not the first people to do this. There's an enormously long uh, and distinguished tradition of people who have thought about this question. And, and in many ways, our uh, approach is just following on, just trying to develop in more detail some thoughts that other people have had. But our idea is that the word no is context sensitive and can express uh, different things in different cases. Now, that's not a perfectly exact way of putting it, but let's just use that way of uh, putting it for now. So that when I say to you, oh, Lois knows that Superman is Superman, she's not stupid. Um, that uh, sentence, in that sentence, the word no expresses one thing. But when I say Lois doesn't know that Superman is Clark uh, because she hasn't found out about his secret identity yet, that sentence, which also seems true, in that sentence, no expresses something different. So if I used the first meaning of no, the one where she knows that Superman is Superman, our theory says, oh, it would still be true that she knows that Superman is Clark. It's just that's a weird thing to say, because when I use the word Clark, I'm suggesting an interpretation of no to you that's a different one. That's the, the reading on which actually she also doesn't know that Superman is Superman. Uh, so the reading on which she doesn't know that Superman is Clark is a reading on which she doesn't know that Superman is Superman. Um, so yeah, so we were trying to, uh, develop that view and see how far we could go with it. Yeah. And so one of the things you introduce in this paper is the relationship between propositional attitude psychology. So Lois's, what we say about whether Lois knows or, or believes something and their corresponding mentalese generalizations, where you bring in the idea that there is this kind of language of thought, this mentalese. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that's uh, related to some of the stuff I was talking about earlier with these different notions of belief, desire, etc. So in the paper, we are doing something uh, where we're really trying to understand how the ways that we talk, 
might be related to a toy theory of what's going on in cognitive psychology. So um, the uh, ways that we talk are going to be the meanings of these words, believe, desire, know, and so on. And the thought is that we want those things to be, to some extent, well-behaved. Because uh, all the time, when I'm trying to explain to you what someone did uh, or what they're going to do, I'll say things about what they know, what they believe, what they want, uh, what they're hoping for, things like that. Um, and so it better be that these terms are at least like uh, well-behaved enough that I'm conveying interesting information to you and information that you can then use in your behavior and uh, in your uh, actions. But you might worry that our, that the original thing that I said, where we say, uh, oh, you know, she knows that uh, Superman is Superman, but she doesn't know that Superman is Superman. Like, that's going to be an okay thing to say because, well, it's not going to be an okay thing to say, but there's a true reading of it because there can be these shifting meanings of no. You might worry that by postulating so many different meanings of no, it's going to be a disaster. Because when I say to you, oh, you know, your friend knows that this is going to happen and that's why they're not going to be there. You're like, well, I don't know, which no am I talking about? Am I talking about the no in the, in the first sense or the no in the second sense? Or maybe there are no in a million senses. And so, uh, you know, there's a problem for how these things could still be usable in explanations and in kind of general claims about what people will do, but also other aspects of what people will think. And so the project of the paper is to try to reclaim a, a way in which it might be uh, reasonable to uh, that th these notions might turn out to be uh, still pretty systematic. Yeah, this is really helpful. One of the things that you sort of talk about here in terms of systematic theorizing about propositional attitudes is the idea of they're having a good standing. And this is kind of important because these principles sort of figure centrally in epistemology, action theory, philosophy of mind. Could you talk a little bit about the what it is for this to have a good standing and, and how you think about that? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So, so when you have context-sensitive expressions, um, it's hard to write down general principles about them, or it can seem hard to write down general principles about them. So if I say uh, that Jane is sitting now, but not sitting now, that could be uh, true. Uh, that sentence that I just said, uh, if Jane stands up while I'm talking. But we shouldn't conclude from the fact that that sentence is true that the principle of non-contradiction uh, is violated. Because uh, the now in the second time, I mean, there's an obvious explanation. Not, this isn't a deep fact. It's just that the now in the second utterance uh, refers to a different time than the now in the first one. So when I say Jane is sitting now, but not sitting now, I'm saying something that is made true at the two different times by different, uh, as it were, by different resolutions of the context sensitivity of now. So I think this shows that if we want to say that the principle of non-contradiction is a principle of the logic of English, we have to restrict how we're understanding what count as instances of that principle. We can't just straight away talk about just look at any utterance of English and say, oh yeah, that counts just by looking at its form. We have to know more about uh, how the relevant expressions are interpreted. And so when we're talking about 
principles that are in good standing in our paper, we want the context sensitivity to be resolved in the same way in every uh, use of the relevant expression. And in that sense, uh, we want to say sort of the obvious thing about the now example, that that doesn't count as a counterexample because uh, now is resolved in different ways. And we want to say the same thing about words like no, believe, and so on. I didn't get to say before anything about the use of uh, mentalese, but I'm happy to leave that and we can just come back to it or not uh, as you That would know. actually be interesting, yeah, if you could talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so I mean, there's this there's this picture from toy from cognitive psychology uh, or whatever. I don't even know if people would call it that uh, anymore. But there's a kind of there's a picture which people have used as a toy model, which is the idea that people have mental representations that have the structure of sentences. And for us, because we're basically just trying to build a mathematical model that uh, works well, that's very useful as a sort of toy theory that we use in the background. So we're not at all committing to the idea that, you know, mental representations are well represented as sentences. That's not the picture. The picture is just let's try this because it gives us a lot of structure. And so what we want to do is to give a theory where if we assume that that's what's going on in people's heads at a certain level of description, can we then relate that in a sufficiently systematic way to the resolutions of the context sensitivity of the attitude verbs uh, like know, believe, and so on. Um, and our project is to see how far you can go uh, doing that with this particular model of people's cognitive psychology. Yeah, that's that's helpful for describing the relationship here. I think a, a last question I have on this paper is there's a particular example you use in this paper about something that we might care about the good standing of. And this was, I think, the an example that says, does knowledge imply belief? And this is kind of a question that we might be interested in the good standing of. I guess I'm curious, you know, when we determine a question or something does not have good standing in the alternate case, then what do we do about that? Do we formulate an alternative version of this question if we still think we're interested in something about it? Do we kick it from consideration? What kind of happens then? I mean, I feel like there's no principled answer to that, unfortunately. I mean, that's a great, it's a great question and it, it raises important questions about what the project is. So we are I think the weakest construal of what we're doing here is a how possible uh, sort of uh, a proof of possibility that um, someone who believes in the uh, extreme context sensitivity of attitude verbs of the kind that we're postulating in the paper could still believe in, this, in a certain degree of systematicity in this vocabulary. And we want to show that that's okay, that that can happen. Um, but then there's a question, well, how much is enough systematicity? Uh, and, you know, which principles in particular are ones that turn out to be correct? And I, I think that there can't be like a general answer to that, because, you know, maybe uh, in the philosophy of action, where people are very interested in the relationship between intending and acting are very interested in the relationship between intending and desire. Maybe someone has given, you know, since we wrote that paper or before, a decisive argument against a certain relationship between intention and desire. Well, then we wouldn't want that theory to come out, that, that principle to come out in our systematic theory because it'll be false in the underlying cognitive uh, psychology, presumably, or, or false in uh, English. So we're trying to be pretty neutral on which principles uh, substantively turn out uh, to be correct. 
and trying to give as broad a proof of possibility as we can. As we note, and as you're noting, there are certain kind of logical forms for principles that don't work, uh, given the sorts of theories that we're devising. And in those cases, we want to try to give the reader strategies for recovering some version of them if they want to recover some version of them. But I think uh, it's up for grabs whether those strategies will be good enough, and it'll probably depend on the particular example you're thinking about. So certainly there's sort of danger for this sort of view lurking in more detailed examination of the particular schema. Before we move on to more AI-specific stuff, there's a last paper that I want to make sure we briefly touch on which is on sense reference and substitution that you also wrote with Jeremy Goodman. And in this one, we're considering a different sentence here, which is if Hesperus is Phosphorus and Hammurabi knew that Hesperus is Hesperus, then Hammurabi knew that Hesperus is Phosphorus. This is again, kind of a case where Frege kind of comes to mind again, because as you introduce, there is a sort of equivocation that goes on if we were to assert this sentence. And I think the main point of this paper, as I understand it, is sort of Frege's distinction, though, between sense and reference doesn't reconcile some classical logics here with some of the counterexamples that you bring up in this paper. So I'm kind of curious for you to introduce the ideas here and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. This is, a, I think, a very fun or interesting kind of observation. Uh, it's a sort of, in a way, a small point, but I, I think it gets at something that sort of Deep. So I think a lot of uh, Fregeans have thought that they have been able to uh, save, in a particular important sense, uh, the, uh, this principle that we call substitution there, which says that if A is B, then in any context, uh, that, you know, in any sentence that has A, you can substitute B in for that sentence. And the reason has to do with something that we already were mentioning, but it's going to take a little bit of explanation of Frege's own view. So Frege's view about the puzzle that I mentioned before uh, that he formulated using Hesperus and Phosphorus, but we've been talking about using Superman, which is a little goofy, but I hope uh, still sort of intelligible, um, that his idea was that there are two aspects, as we might put it, of the meaning of an expression. One was what he called its reference, and the other was what he called its sense. And so in a normal context, just to introduce these ideas, in a normal, in a normal sentence, when I say, uh, you know, uh, Hesperus is bright, this Hesperus was uh, a name that the Greeks used for Venus um, when it occurred in the evening. Um, and uh, phosphorus was a word that they used for it when it occurred in the morning. And the story goes that uh, they didn't know that these were identical. It's not entirely clear that that's, the, uh, sorry, it's, it's most likely that they did know that they were identical from a pretty early point. But anyway, that, that's fine. That's not how the story is told. So um, the idea is that if I say Hesperus is bright, in that use of the sentence, um, the word Hesperus refers to the planet Venus but it has a different sense. And its sense is something like uh, maybe something roughly associated with the description star that appears in the evening or heavenly body that appears in the evening because it's not a star, it's a planet. But then Frege had the idea that when I say um, that, when I say Daniel believes that Hesperus is bright, the word Hesperus actually shifts in an important way. So its reference, which used to be the planet Venus, now becomes its normal sense. So in that use, 
the word uh, refers instead to something like planet that is visible in the evening. Uh, yes, that is visible in the evening. Um, and Frege's idea was that this could solve the problem of substitution because when these words occur, as we say, embedded under the attitude uh, verb, they have a different reference than they normally do. So when I say that uh, Hesperus is bright and Phosphorus is bright, the reference, those are just naked, you know, unembedded expressions. The, the reference of Hesperus and Phosphorus is the same in those two cases. But when I say that Daniel believes that Hesperus is bright, but doesn't believe that Phosphorus is bright, that can be made sense of because the reference of Hesperus in the first case is its sense, and the reference of Phosphorus in its second case is its sense. But the idea is that Hesperus and Phosphorus have different senses. So Hesperus Hesperus's sense is something like having to do with the evening, and uh, Phosphorus' sense is something having to do with the morning. Maybe that's not a good characterization of sense, but I'm just trying to give you a feeling for uh, the view. And then uh, the basic thought uh, that uh, Frege had was that uh, we can think about these words as, in a sense, ambiguous. So Hesperus, in its normal use, just means a planet or refers to a planet, whereas Hesperus, in its embedded use, refers to a sense. So apparent counterexamples to this principal substitution that are, you know, Hesperus is Phosphorus and Daniel believes uh, Phosphorus is bright, but doesn't believe that uh, Hesperus is bright. Apparent counterexamples to that substitution principle that I mentioned before are actually explained by ambiguity. So they don't really count as instances of the original schema because the words are used ambiguously. It's quite similar to the example of now that I was using before. And basically, we argue in the paper that Fregans can't really uh, happily adopt this strategy of claiming ambiguity here, at least if they claim that certain natural principles about uh, propositional attitude psychology are uh, in good standing. So if they want there to be some principles that connect propositional attitudes to the world, they're going to be in trouble uh, at adopting the strategy of saying, oh, well, these ones are ambiguous, so we throw them out. Um, and that's a very rough version of the argument, uh, but that's the basic. Yeah. And I guess for sort of a, a positive conclusion here, the hope that you express at the end of this paper is for more investigation into possibilities for systematic theorizing, where we have to give up substitution. And I'm curious if either at the time of writing this or, or since then, you've had any intuitions or thoughts about what that might look like. A theory without substitution? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wrote another paper. Uh, you've, you've picked on, on the, the suite of papers that I wrote with uh, Jeremy. Uh, and I wrote another paper with Michael Kai, who's a philosopher at the University of Toronto, um, where we develop a specific theory uh, or a specific set of theories of uh, what a logic might look like that doesn't have substitution. So that paper is called classical opacity. And working again in higher order in a higher order logic like the one I described before, we try to explore more systematically what some theories that uphold certain principles about quantificational reasoning uh, would look like if they rejected uh, substitution. This basic principle, and I would say that my own attitude is. Uh, those are pretty drastic departures from classical logic. Uh, but um, I think that if one wants a Fergaean theory, that at least that's what we were arguing in the short paper, uh, one should be interested in exploring those kinds of theories of uh, the universe. Uh, and we try to do our best there. 
I think this is a good place for us to get on to the AI-specific section of this conversation. So right now you have a paper in the works with Kyle Mahold, I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, called Do Language Models Produce Reference Like Libraries or Like Librarians? And you explore this really interesting idea of bibliotechnism brought up by Alison Gopnik here. I, I really like the, the way you express the motivation, which is something that's kind of come up in a number of episodes by this point which is if we attribute beliefs, desires, and intentions to modern LLMs, if we treat them as agents, then we can employ the same explanation of their behavior as with other things that we consider agents. And this is really interesting because, again, for the ML community, we're looking at these systems that seem to produce text that looks like a human could have written it and all of this. And so how do we actually explain what's going on? Because it seems like oh, they're just predicting the next word. Well, that is true in some sense for the base models, that still doesn't quite capture everything that's interesting about this. So we're looking for sort of powerful explanations of that behavior. So I'd love for you to, to introduce the idea of bibliotechnism and how you're thinking about that in the context of language models. Yeah, so as I'm thinking, as we're thinking about bibliotechnism in this paper, which is a word we're, uh, I think, introducing to this discussion um, for this position that other people have called uh, Gopnikism uh, for Alison Gopnik, the psychologist who you mentioned. In this paper, we are uh, interested in taking bibliotechnism as far as it can go in a certain sense. So we are, bibliotechnism is a view that sees language models as a cultural technology as something akin to a library or a printing press that allows for the transmission of information, but not necessarily the production of new ideas. And the general picture there is to try to understand language models without attributing beliefs, desires, and intentions to them, without seeing them as agents. But in the course of that discussion, we talk about what might be at stake in attributing beliefs, desires, and intentions to language models. So I'll talk about that in now in response to your question. So I think that uh, if you think about people, uh, people are clearly describable at some, or I take it, are describable at some microphysical level uh, in some pretty straightforward way. So we could give a low uh, description, a low level description. I mean, it would take a lot of energy and we maybe don't even have the tools yet, but but in principle, it must be possible uh, to describe what's going on with people or it should be possible to describe what's going on with people at a very basic level as you know, some atoms getting together, whatever. However, when we talk about people, we still find it useful to use high-level descriptions as somehow summary statistics that tell us about what's going on. And that's a really useful theory to use of people in describing their behavior. There's a common sense version of this, like the kind of download that I was talking about when we talk about you know, what's going on with a friend, what they're going through, what kinds of conversations we have with them. But there's also a more systematic thing in the social sciences where people try to uh, represent at a macro scale what's happening with individual agents. And there too, this involved, these models involve attributing beliefs and desires to the agents in many cases. So uh, there's some view that at a high level, attributing beliefs, desires, and intentions to um, agents can be a helpful way of describing them, even when we know uh, that there exists a lower level uh, theory that might actually give us more accurate 
predictions of what's going to happen, but in a certain way, less informative uh, predictions of what's going to happen. And so I think as I see it anyway, and I'm not really an expert here, I'm, I'm sort of uh, wading into this territory uh, a little bit, perhaps uh, unadvisedly, uh, but, I'm, uh, but the way that I see it, uh, the question that we're asking about uh, language models is we, we actually have, in this case, a better, maybe not a perfect, but we have a better understanding of what's happening, as it were, at a fine level of detail than we do with humans. But we're still asking, is it useful or is it, uh, you know, is it correct to have also this higher level uh, description in terms of their beliefs, desires, and intentions? And there are lots of substantive theories in philosophy that we could talk about more of what it takes for those agents to have beliefs, desires, and intentions. Uh, some of them think, oh, well, it's just enough if it's a useful tool to predict their behavior. That's a very kind of weak uh, standard that something might need to pass. Uh, and then there are others which have much more demanding conditions on what would need to be, what would need to uh, be satisfied. But I, I think it's helpful to think of them all in terms of this idea that it's it's not incompatible with the idea that we have this description at the fine level of detail, that uh, we know what they're doing at some level of description. That's okay. There still can be a further question of whether there's a different explanation that's available in terms of beliefs, desires, and intentions. Yeah. One particular version of the what does it take question that I'm interested in is about reference. And you're really careful with the distinction in this paper, which I liked and which we talked about earlier, which was there's a difference between the statement that large language models produce inscriptions, produce words, and those words refer to things, and the statement that large language models themselves refer. You're more interested in that former statement about their producing inscriptions with which refer, and you talk about derivative meaning here, but I'm also kind of interested in that, what does it take for something to be capable of reference? And there's a way that, I guess in speaking to somebody else about this, he brought up his notion that the capability for reference is, there, there's sort of an, an ontological question of, is this the sort of thing that is in the business of referring? And I'd be curious to hear you just talk a little bit about this idea, insofar as you've thought about it, of what it might take to be able to refer to something. Yeah, I think I don't have a, a view of like what the minimal uh, conditions are, but I think that uh, it's clear that humans can refer kind of as agents uh, to things and uh, that that's facilitated by our having beliefs, desires, and intentions. There are lots of substantive views out there about what it takes more exactly for uh, something to refer, or what, what humans are doing when we refer to stuff. But it's clear that we can refer to stuff, well, there's a natural use of the word refer according to which we can refer to stuff without using language at all, um, and uh, in lots of different ways uh, that are, you know, that uh, maybe don't correspond to our literal meanings, uh, and uh, maybe are even involved kind of factual misspecification of um, what's going on. And just to say, I mean, and that that's different from uh, a text referring. So, you know, I think it's very, it's very natural to say that uh, the words in a book refer to someone. And that's a bit different than saying that uh, the author was referring to someone uh, when they did this. And I think it, it may be that the way that the words in the book refer to something is because the author was appropriately connected to them. We, we totally think that that is 
probably normal. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the printing press uh, was referring as an agent when it printed the book. Uh, so just to just to try to make that point a bit clear, like when the author is writing something down uh, in their notebook, uh, they are by doing that maybe referring to someone in the paper we're using the example of Shakespeare. So they are presumably referring to Shakespeare by writing that inscription. When the printing press then prints the words that the author originally wrote down, I don't think the printing press is referring to Shakespeare. The printing press can't do anything like that. Uh, so that, but the printing press is producing a word that refers to Shakespeare. Um, and I think anyone who reads the book is, of course, going to say, oh, you know, this word refers to Shakespeare. It's the name uh, Shakespeare. Um, and so the fact that they're, we're very interested in the fact that there can be this kind of intermediary that isn't themselves or isn't itself a referring agent, but that nevertheless, the system as a whole produces uh, reference. Yeah, and this is sort of how you go from this idea of basic versus derivative reference, right? The person who is kind of in the world, is aware of Shakespeare, is writing down Shakespeare with their own hand or typing it with their own fingers, is actually the person who is doing this act of, of basic reference to Shakespeare, and their words carry that basic reference, essentially. But then I photocopy it a bunch of times, I transmit it in different ways, and the word is still referring, as you're saying here. But now we have derivative reference where there's this causal chain that goes all the way back to the human being, the person who originally produced that basically referring inscription, but is not the same as that person or the words that they originally inscribed. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're thinking that uh, if bibliotechnism, uh, this uh, mouthful that we've coined, uh, if that's correct, uh, then it must be that uh, the LLM's words refer in some way analogously to the ways that uh, photocopier, you know, photocopies refer. So the words that the LLM is producing must be uh, referential only in this derivative sense, only because they are somehow traceable back to uh, words that a human produced, uh, or anyway, that a creature with intentions produced, and or intentions, beliefs, desires, and so on. And so uh, the idea is that if LLMs are like a photocopier, they're not uh, sources of new kinds of reference uh, to things, but they are instead uh, just piggybacking on the original reference uh, that people produced. And so the idea is uh, that it's very important to draw this distinction between entities that produce the tokens, maybe without referring as agents, just as the photocopier or the printing press do, and uh, entities which both uh, refer as agents and, uh, you know, refer through the tokens uh, that they produce, like people, authors of books or speakers. Yeah. So as an initial kind of intuition pumping move, you begin not with large language models, but with n-gram models and talk about how they can produce derivatively meaningful words. And I think we've kind of put together all of the infrastructure for this, but do you want to put together like the basic argument for why this is true for me? Yeah. So I think if you think about a unigram model, it's pretty clear. So a uh, unigram model is just picking a word uh, as it were at random. Of course, there's a, there's a distribution that it's choosing from, so it's not doing it just uniformly at random over all text, uh, but it's, it's picking a word from its data. And we can think about it as just copying that word into the text uh, that it produces. 
So if you think that photocopiers uh, can uh, produce referential expressions, then uh, you, sh you know, can produce expressions which refer, uh, then you should think that the n-gram, because it's just here photocopying, you know, as it were, a, a particular token, uh, can also transmit uh, the reference of the original uh, word. So in particular, if it's, you know, does its, uh, chooses from its lottery and then uh, picks a token of Shakespeare, that token of Shakespeare refers to Shakespeare, uh, not because the engram is some fancy uh, new kind of agent that has intentions about Shakespeare, but because um, the original token referred to Shakespeare, and it's a copy of that token. And so I think once you think about photocopiers, you can see very clearly that uh, engrams uh, should be able to produce referential expressions that have, produce inscriptions that refer, even though I, I don't think anybody in the universe thinks that a unigram model has intentions uh, or beliefs or desires. Well, sorry, anybody in the universe with any philosophical claim, you know, uh, there's someone who, who has the crazy view, but, but, uh, you know, I think that, I think that view is a, is a bad view. Um, so I think you can see pretty clearly that uh, the individual words that are copied are going to be meaningful and meaningful in this derivative way. Um, and I think that, uh, but I think if you reflect on unigrams, you can also see that there's a sort of problem because they just produce sort of, well, frankly, random words in a row. Uh, they don't fit together very well because they don't know anything about what uh, came before. And so even though each word might be meaningful, uh, it's very hard to see how the sentences that it produces, or even just complex expressions, could have a relevant glue between them. Uh, because it seems like they're just produced in a way that is not sensitive at all to any of the relevant features of the sort of context or whatever uh, that the word originally lived in. So if we go back to photocopiers, there's an important contrast here. The photocopier, you know, copies a whole page. That's how it works. Um, and because it does so, it's not just that the individual word Shakespeare will be meaningful. The whole sentence in which it occurs will be, uh, the, the inscription of the sentence will be meaningful because it's copied the whole thing. But the engram, the unigram in this case is garbling that context. And because it's garbling it, it's not causally sensitive in the right way to the, the overall context. So we don't want to say that the whole sentence inherits its meaning because there was no original sentence that it was copying. I mean, it's just copying some words chosen from all over its its corpus. And so even though even, you know, each one of them could be good, uh, they won't fit together in the right way. Yeah. And an important point you bring up here is that there is some probability that with these engrams, even if it's not always going to occur, they could produce a grammatically correct sentence. Can you talk a little bit about why that sentence still wouldn't be meaningful, why it wouldn't refer in the right ways that you're thinking about? Yeah. So I think there's one case that I'm very clear about, and there's another case that I'm still thinking about. So one case that I'm very clear about is suppose it copies, you know, Shakespeare from one part of its corpus, was from another part of its corpus, born from another part of its corpus, and in from another part of its corpus, and, you know, 1564, I can't remember if that's the right year, uh, from another part of its corpus. In that case, I mean, it's really just a fluke that this sentence uh, was printed here. And I feel no pressure at all to want to say, oh, this was a, a meaningful sentence. Think about, uh, you know, if you put some books in a, in a shredder and then, uh, you know, the wastebasket tips over and the wind kind of flows all around and someone finds, you know, written in the sand, uh, you know, or, or written in the 
leftover clippings of the paper, Shakespeare was born in 1564. I feel no pressure to say, oh, that sentence uh, had a meaning, uh, has a meaning that uh, comes from the stitched together parts. It's just random that uh, that sentence happened. It wasn't causally related to what was in the data in the right way. There's a different thing that could happen with much lower probability that I'm a little bit less clear about. Uh, the unigram could just, as a matter of fact, choose from its data a token of Shakespeare that comes right before a token of was, and then choose that was next, and then choose that in next, you know, and so actually end up copying the sentence, even though it kind of does that at random. I think in that case, I want to say, well, it was it's a fluke, um, even though it did copy uh, that sentence word for word, as it were, it's really a fluke that that happened. And because it was such a fluke, we can't say that it was reliably producing that copy, uh, even though it's reliably producing each word. And so still, I think we want to say that the copy of that sentence is not meaningful as a sentence, even though each of its tokens are meaningful. And even though, as a matter of fact, uh, the engram kind of copied that sentence word for word. Does that Makes sense. Yeah, that, that's actually, it's, it's really interesting and kind of connects us to the language model question a bit. So what you've introduced here is, again, the copy of a full sentence isn't reliable, but maybe by a fluke, this, this engram actually did go ahead and copy Shakespeare was born in, and this all came in sequentially in its training corpus. And again, the, the fact that this is probabilistic, though, introduces some issues when it comes to the causal connections we're thinking about. And large language models, there are pretty similar mechanisms when it comes to things like learning and context. And if you've looked at any work that came out of Anthropic, there's these sort of induction heads that will take context from very early in their training data. And then when they spot similar patterns in their prompts, then that kind of gets copied over. And so there's this really interesting sort of set of mechanisms that are going on here, which is of course not the exact same as what's going on when an engram model happens to by fluke copy over a whole sentence but there are some interesting similarities there yeah i think as we're seeing it this initial discussion of uh unigrams should make you think that there's a big question for bibliotechnism as applied to llms and as applied to uh whole sentences because while it's obvious that in the unigram case, well, it's obvious in the unigram case that the individual words are going to be meaningful or whatever, the individual tokens, depending on how it's, um, it's not obvious that uh, the whole sentences are going to be meaningful. Indeed, it seems obvious that they won't be uh, to us. Um, but in the LLM case, the bibliotechnist certainly wants to say that uh, the whole sentence is going to be meaningful, or I think they should want to say that the whole sentence uh, is going to be meaningful. And there's a problem about how they can do this, given the technical similarity and the sort of underlying, you know, guts similarity between the engram and the LLM. And as you're saying, uh, there are also disanalogies. And so it's important to focus on the disanalogies for them. But we're seeing that as an initial challenge that we're trying to respond to in the paper, trying to address in the paper. How do you get from this case of the engrams where the words are, where the word inscriptions are meaningful, but the sentences aren't, to the LLM case where we want to say that the sentences are meaningful um, in spite of the fact that the underlying mechanism is quite similar uh, in a certain sense to uh, what's happening with the engrams. Um, so maybe we should talk about that now or... Yeah, let's talk about that. So by way of, of kind of bridging us there, there have been a couple of works in this domain that we've spoken and corresponded about and that have come up that you reference in this paper. 
So Metal, Kern, and Lindzen have this question, can language models refer, where they respond in the affirmative? I recently spoke to Raphael Millier, who has this really interesting paper with Dimitri Molo that talks a little bit about this question of, of reference and meaningfulness and sort of in the context of the symbol grounding problem, arguing that the vectors, the tokens that LLMs produce are grounded. And this has a lot to do with how reinforcement learning from human feedback provides the right sort of causal connections and, and historical connections as well. So I'd love for you to contextualize where you stand on some of these questions in relation to the other works and discussion that has been going on recently. Yeah. We were really inspired uh, in our thinking about this uh, by both of the works that you've just mentioned. I think those are really fascinating, uh, important uh, works. Someone said to me recently that, you know, for philosophers of language, this is this incredibly exciting thing where we really don't know what's happening yet. So I'll talk about some ways in which we disagree uh, with what uh, the those authors are saying, but, you know, that's really in the spirit of like, we're trying to figure this out. And uh, these are hard philosophical questions. um, And uh, it's still unclear. So I think Mandelkern and and Lindzen uh, provide this important uh, corrective to some of the literature that had gone before, or let's say an important addition to what had gone before of bringing in some ideas from uh, the philosophy of language, which hadn't been present in the discussion previously, where they want to emphasize uh, the role of externalism, uh, which I'll talk about in one second, uh, to the grounding of reference. So uh, in semantic externalism is the view that uh, sort of individual words can have uh, meanings or reference in virtue of features of your environment and in virtue of features of your community that aren't local to the speaker or whatever. So basically, uh, the slogan of the view is meanings ain't in the head, which is that, uh, you know, the idea that uh, we can't just look at cognitive architecture in order to figure out what the meanings of expressions are. And that, I think, is is a it has been the dominant view in philosophy or of an extremely prominent view anyway since uh, the late 1970s and the early 1980s. Uh, but uh, in the discussions of LLM meaning has been an extreme minority view. Uh, so if, I think they were primarily, Mendelkern and Lindzen are primarily trying to get this view on the table and see what it says about uh, LLMs. And part of the picture there is that the original examples of this, who might my uh, word Shakespeare refer to? Well, that can't really be local to me uh, because, uh, you know, presumably uh, it depends on how this word is used in our in our community because I've never interacted uh, socially with Shakespeare. Uh, and uh, there, uh, but it seems like I'm somehow able to refer to Shakespeare. So the thought is that uh, we need to explain this fact uh, of how I'm able to refer to Shakespeare. And maybe this isn't, what, what I just said is not a great way of introducing semantic externalism. It's a good way of explaining the view, I think, uh, but maybe not introducing the considerations that motivated it. But the, but the background idea is that I'm able to refer to Shakespeare in part because of the causal connection between me, my community, individuals in my community, tracing all the way back to 
Shakespeare. And so this, Mandelkern and Lindzen are uh, trying to show how that would allow for uh, LLMs to refer in virtue of their relationship to our linguistic community, in spite of the fact that they may not have interacted directly with the object. So it's been noted often that, you know, the LLMs, at least at that time, uh, didn't have uh, a lot of connections to various sensory modalities. And there were concerns about whether that meant that they couldn't refer to objects in the world. And they're just observing, well, look, like we're able to refer to things like Shakespeare in virtue of our connection just to the community, just to our linguistic environment in some sense. Uh, and it might seem then that LLMs at least are similarly well positioned. Now, in Mandelkern and Lindzen's paper, though, they don't draw a sharp distinction, as we are drawing, between agent referring and between the text actually referring. And so they sort of conclude that LLMs can do this only if they're agents. And from our perspective, that would be bad news for bibliotechnism, because it would mean that we basically have to attribute uh, agential status to LLMs. In particular, we would have to attribute intentions, beliefs, and so on uh, to uh, LLMs in order for their words to count as meaningful. I'm simplifying a little bit their discussion, but that's basically what I take to be the upshot. Um, and so we're drawing this sharp distinction between these kind of this agent referring and the referring of the inscriptions that allows us to try to make good on a picture where LLMs don't have agency, but nevertheless can produce tokens uh, that uh, refer to stuff in the world. Um, so that's some discussion of our difference with them. Um, with uh, Colomolo and Miliere, who also have this lovely paper that you, you did an interview with Raphael Miliere that I really enjoyed uh, as well, um, they uh, have a different approach where they think that human involvement is really essential, not just in the corpus, not just in the original data that the LLM is trained on, but through uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback, RLHF, uh, in order to ground uh, the meaning of symbols. And we are taking an approach where, as I've already said, look, engrams can refer uh, to stuff, uh, according to us, or they can't refer as agents, but they can produce tokens which refer. I should be careful about that distinction. Uh, engrams can produce inscriptions which refer. Um, and so it must not be that uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback is essential to the possibility of uh, LLMs producing inscriptions which refer. Uh, and so we're differing from them in trying to find, find an even more basic level at which LLMs might be able to refer. But we're not uh, excluding their very interesting discussion of this uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback. We're open to the idea that that could be part of the mechanism by which, in fact, existing LLMs inscriptions are meaningful. We're just giving an in-principle idea that you don't need that in order for there to be uh, meaning. Yeah, this is, a, this is really good by way of introduction. And so maybe it would be good to talk a little bit about, we've, I suppose, skirted around and introduced how we can bridge our way towards what's going on with LLMs and derivative reference and kind of define this. And so maybe we can talk a little bit more in detail about that sort of causal connection and how this relates to when we're jumping from individual words like Shakespeare to the complex expressions that LLMs output that you and I read. And these are actually like meaningful. They're intelligible to us. They make sense. When I read something that an LLM says about Obama or Shakespeare, I think about the actual person in my head, what's going on when it comes to that capability and how it comes sort of speaks to reference? 
Yeah, so this is a sort of central part of the paper where we're trying to make good on the idea that bibliotechnism could account for the meaningfulness of these sentences. Um, and uh, the central, or at a very abstract level, the thought that we have is that the sort of high level features of the strings that it produces, the fact that they form sentences, the fact that they're grammatical, that could have one kind of causal path that is different from the causal path that uh, leads to the individual sentences. That maybe is a slightly inaccurate way of describing it, but I hope that it gives you a picture. So the idea is that it's kind of like a photocopier, uh, but it's a photocopier with extra constraints that are coming in that guarantee that the words that it randomly copies are going to fit in a certain pattern. So let me try to warm up to that idea by an example. So suppose you have um, a uh, machine or you know a model, let's say that uh, you know you feed it a sentence. And it has a list of names in its database. And it finds the names in the sentence you feed it, deletes them, and replaces them with another name drawn randomly uh, from its database. Now, in this case, I think this model will produce meaningful sentences as a whole, um, in spite of the fact that the sort of glue for the sentence comes from the original sentence that you fed it. Whereas the glue for the reference of the name it substitutes comes from the names in its database. So suppose we feed it the sentence Shakespeare was born in 1564, and then it replaces Shakespeare with uh, Barack Obama. Uh, then it'll produce the sentence Barack Obama was born in 1564. Now, this is a false sentence, but in my view, it's a meaningful sentence. I think it's natural to judge that this whole sentence is meaningful. But this illustrates that what you can have is that the name Barack Obama got its reference not because the LLM, this LLM, I mean, it's not an LLM, whatever, this very simple model is uh, creating reference, but because in its database, the names that are stored there do refer to those individuals and it just copied it. So it's behaving like a photocopier in that respect. But also the way in which it's programmed to do this find and replace is guaranteeing that the produced sentence has the high level feature of intelligibility. I mean, in this case, it's going to be false, uh, but uh, it's going to be under comprehensible to us. So we think that this kind of uh, system, although it's very dumb and very simple, can uh, produce meaningful sentences in a way that the simple n-gram models, uh, or at least the unigram models, when they're not uh, totally photocopying uh, are, or totally copying, are ones uh, that it can produce sentences that are overall meaningful. Um, and so this provides a model for how the glue of the sentence might come from one causal source, whereas the reference of the individual expressions come from another causal source. And our picture is that uh, bibliotechnists should say that the same is going on with LLMs, that basically what's happened is that through its training and the tinkering with the model, the LLMs, and I think this is quite an empirically surprising fact, but I think it's true uh, about uh, LLMs, that they are sensitive to high-level features of the data, uh, in particular the grammaticality and, in fact, the intelligibility of sentences, so that by some miracle, these uh, kind of dumb-seeming uh, systems, when given enough 
uh, uh, data can uh, produce, I don't mean dumb in the sense of they don't have remarkable fat, you know, results, just that uh, dumb in the sense that uh, it seems like a simple idea that somehow leads to this remarkable sensitivity to high level features of the data. It turns out that they are sensitive to whether the whole sentence that they're producing is going to be intelligible. And so that in some sense, we can think of it as having been causally sensitive to properties of its data. If you fed it a whole bunch of data that had all in unintelligible sentences, it wouldn't then produce uh, intelligible sentences on the other side. So it somehow picked up on the intelligibility of the sentences in its in its data. It's causally sensitive to that. And so when it produces these new uh, whole sentences, it's responsive to the intelligibility in the same way that the dumb find and replace model that I described at the start is. And that that's enough to ground the meaningfulness of the whole sentence uh, where the meanings of the individual expressions are coming from the fact that those are, as it were, directly copied from the corpus that it wants. Yeah, and an interesting intersection here, I know that you're kind of interested in a more base version of this than what's going on with Mullo and Miliere and the RLHF aspect, but even in the context of just the language modeling objective, predict the next word, as you note, this brings out a sensitivity to the intelligibility of sentences, to their being well-formed and so on. And then RLHF kind of on top of that, bringing in humans who are noting, is this a sentence that has certain desirable properties? Importantly, truthfulness is one of those properties. And so that brings in this extra dimension of, okay, well now these LLMs have a bit of sensitivity to truth. And I'm kind of curious how you think about that as well. Yeah, I think something we're saying uh, that is, uh, a bit different than, I mean, if, if you think about my uh, find and replace the names model, that's not sensitive to truth at all, but I have the judgment that it's producing meaningful sentences. So I think that at least provides um, one example where sensitivity to truth isn't a necessary condition for meaningfulness. Um, that's not to say that it's not important. I mean, the truth really matters. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it does seem to me that those two features can be prized apart. The things that happen in uh, RLHF may do more, yet more, to ground even more features of uh, these, uh, the sentences that are produced and to give an even stronger normative foundation, whatever, uh, many of the things that Colomolo and uh, Milier talk about. Uh, but I'm not sure that truth is so important to the quality of the data. So I've been using this word intelligibility. Maybe I should say a word about it. So there's a, there's a doctrine, uh, which I believe uh, in philosophy, that we can separate grammaticality from meaningfulness. Um, so there are grammatical sentences that are meaningless. The famous example is colorless green ideas sleep furiously, um, which is perfectly grammatical sentence of English, but it just sounds like uh, nonsense. But maybe there are even crazier ones. In fact, we have some in the in the uh, paper, which I can't remember because they're so weird. Uh, but uh, the um, so grammaticality is not a sufficient condition for uh, intelligibility, and certainly not a sufficient condition for meaningfulness. So it's actually the LLMs are uh, sensitive to more than grammaticality. They seem to be sensitive to this further feature of producing kind of intelligible content, even when it's false. 
But intelligibility is again quite different from truthfulness and false and falsity, or you know, truth and falsity, as we've seen, because the false sentence Barack Obama was born in 1564 is perfectly intelligible uh, in spite of being false. Yeah, another component of this when it comes to, I think, intelligibility, but then also the idea of reference is in this paper, you mostly talk a little bit about the ways in which the idea of reference for either an individual word or, or maybe a an expression and it's being basic or derivative has to do with this causal connection, the process that produced the inscription on the one hand. But especially when we get to more complex expressions and things like this, we take into account, again, you talked about grammaticality and are they well-formed, but then also the reader of the expression to an extent. And I think that what like intelligibility, maybe there's still like a range of what this actually could look like, but I feel like you can imagine that what is intelligible for one person is less intelligible or possibly even not intelligible for another. I don't know exactly how true that claim is, but that's something that I'm thinking about. And I'm curious if that's something that's come up for you, at least in considering this question. Yeah, I think we're thinking about intelligibility, or I shouldn't speak for Kyle, I'm, I'm thinking about intelligibility as a abstract property of the sentences, which isn't supposed to be relative to uh, a particular speaker. So it's true that I might look at a sentence and like, what is that? And, and you might look at it and, and find it totally comprehensible. Uh, but somehow I'm imagining that uh, there's just a standard of intelligibility for sentences of English or English plus, whatever uh, that sort of vague cloud of expressions is. Um, and uh, and also for other natural languages, also maybe for programming languages, and that it's a kind of, uh, it's a constraint or at least a sufficient condition for the sentences that the LLM is producing that it be causally sensitive to the intelligibility uh, in that sense of its data. And that intelligibility is not supposed to be understood as observer relative, although of course it'll be manifested in in facts about you know what various readers uh, find intelligible or what various listeners find intelligible. That's clarifying, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this problem of, of novel reference and what happens when large language models produce something novel and how this poses a challenge to bibliotechnism. And maybe by way of introducing this, you could talk a little bit about this example of a large language model producing a sentence about somebody called Marion Starlight. Yeah, so this is a kind of fun part of the paper that I guess uh, we're hoping will spur some discussion of cases where uh, LLMs can produce a novel reference using words that in their in their data didn't refer to uh, particular people. And we think this is very interesting because of the picture we've just sketched. So it seems like, you know, we've we've talked through now at some length this idea that LLMs only produce reference derivatively. Um, so that it requires that it be in their data, that something refer to something, uh, and then they can use that expression again to, they can produce, you know, an, an inscription of that expression, and it'll still refer to the thing that it referred to in their data. But you can actually get an LLM to do stuff that's quite different. Um, so we gave it a task where we, well, we gave it a task. I mean, we just asked, uh, uh, ChatGPT to, discuss a historical person of its choosing using a name that wasn't uh, in its data. Now, we haven't actually checked uh, fully, so this is something, this is still work in progress, uh, whether it is in the data and how it might be uh, doing this. But 
basically, uh, it comes, it came up with an example and told us about a person named Marion Starlight, uh, giving us all facts that were, uh, you know, on reflection about the historical Robespierre. And so we think it's clear that in these sentences that the LLM is producing, um, Robespierre, uh, sorry, Marion Starlight refers to Robespierre. Uh, but it's not true, we assume, still to be determined, uh, it's not true in the data that the name, quote, Marion Starlight refers to Robespierre. So it, at a very minimum, can't be that the same story about derivative reference that we were telling uh, about other names, you know, like Shakespeare in its data and in its produced inscriptions, applies to these inscriptions of Marion Starlight. Um, and so this is a case of a kind of novel reference, a use of a word to refer, that may suggest to some that the LLM is doing something more agent-like, or it will suggest to others that uh, we just need a, a richer or a further account of derivative reference uh, to handle these cases, maybe not the same one that we were using before. Yeah, and before we get into some of the trickiness here and what interpretations of this could be, this is kind of similar to a previous example you brought up, where you have something that's kind of a, a find and replace almost, where it's copying over a sentence, but maybe everywhere it sees Robespierre, here it is instead copying over and replacing that with Marion Starlight or something. So I'm wondering if you can maybe talk me through how you might see some analogies, disanalogies in the two cases here. Well, first of all, I want to say, you know, I drew this contrast before between the fine level of, of description and the kind of higher level of description. I don't know if that's something I want to die by, but anyway, I said that. Uh, so that is in our conversation. Um, but, you know, at a fine level, it's not doing find and replace. We, we know that it's not actually, you know, generating the sentences and then and then replacing. Uh, but at a higher level of description, we might want to describe what it's doing as generating a bunch of sentences about Robespierre and then uh, replacing them uh, with these names. Uh, so in some sense, it could be the same that it has a stock of kind of fake names that it could draw on when asked to do this, this task. And then uh, it just matches them with uh, some existing uh, thing, you know, it just replaces an existing uh, name with that uh, old name. But I think that What's different is that in the find and re in the you know replacing the name example that I gave before, when it produces the sentence Barack Obama was born in 1564, I take it to be pretty clear that the name Barack Obama, as inscribed there, does not refer to Shakespeare. It refers to Barack Obama. Uh, so that's a false sentence about Barack Obama, not a weird way of talking about Shakespeare. In the Marion Starlight example, however, um, it seems like. It's using this name, which, as far as we know, is new. Maybe there is someone out there. I apologize to that person uh, who's called that. Uh, but this is supposed to be a new example and a new, a, a sort of new name. And it's uh, using this name to refer to a different person. So it's done something quite different than just used what was in its data already uh, to transmit reference into this new context uh, and instead seems to have generated a new example of reference using this name. Yeah. So, so before we get into some of these expanded notions of derivative reference, I do want to talk about your second example, which I think you take from Patel and Pavlik. And this sort of has to do with how an LLM can deal with directionality. And so I'd love for you to introduce that as well. Yeah, well, 
that discussion is bolstering uh, something that we uh, sort of formally, our second example is slightly different. So what the, the task here is we ask uh, to uh, generate a uh, diagram uh, you know, using a coding language because we're not uh, using a, a sort of direct graphic uh, generating uh, uh, model. But we are, um, so we, we ask it to produce a diagram and then use some new names to talk about the diagram. So this is to deal with a concern that uh, somehow the word, the name Marion Starlight is getting its reference from the fact that in the data, Robespierre already refers to this historical person. In this case, because the diagram is newly created, if the name also refers to this new part of the diagram, uh, that feels uh, like something that's new. And we're doing something here where we, we want to be more systematic about the capacities of these LLMs. And we're, we're in this paper trying to do more of a theory thing than an empirical thing. So these are uh, examples that are need to be empirically tested uh, now. But uh, we note that this seems uh, intuitively plausible because of the example you mentioned from the uh, Pavlik paper where um, they are uh, describing uh, various features of a diagram using words like Northwest or something, which the LLM hasn't seen connected to this particular context before. And the LLM is able pretty quickly to figure out how these directions relate to the picture. So able to understand how these and, and use fresh terms to describe the picture. So they've, they've somehow picked up now uh, a model of the picture uh, that allows them to uh, discuss orientation. We think that makes it feel in line with those uh, ideas that it's, that it's able to, and we've seen it able to uh, describe features of the picture using a new name. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's talk a little bit about then what this kind of demands us to think when it comes to derivative reference and expanding it all. And so you, you talk about a couple of different responses here. One I'm, I'm particularly interested in, though, is the second one where you talk about how derivative reference to new objects can be made possible in virtue of human intentions in the setup of the LLM. And so I'd love for you to talk through that a little bit. Well, I think that idea is related to what we were discussing with Colomolo and Millier's work, where they're thinking that, you know, in the process of reinforcement learning um, with human feedback, you're getting uh, the human intentions into the mix so that that can help to ground uh, the language of the uh, LLM. And here we're thinking, uh, or at least one response to the example that we're anticipating is the idea that because you've asked the LLM to create a word and, uh, you know, that will be a new word for the human, uh, for, you know, some historical person, or for that matter, some aspect of the uh, picture. It's actually not that the LLM is generating the reference, but actually that either uh, the creator of the LLM had some kind of general intention that uh, whenever it invented new names, they would refer to the person who was best described by the context, or uh, that uh, the user has a general intention that uh, whenever uh, it comes up with this new name, that name will refer to whoever is best described uh, by the context. And so the thought would be, here's just a different mechanism of derivative reference uh, that is available in this context uh, that explains what looks to be the novel reference 
of the LLM. So we're not uh, necessarily going all in on that option, but that's one thing that uh, proponents of bibliotechnism could say in response to this example, that uh, we can accommodate it by uh, derivative reference, just a different mechanism of derivative reference, where it's the human user or the human creator of the LLM that is now responsible rather than the features of the original data. So we don't use the photocopier or you know, kind of Mad Libs uh, causal process that we discussed earlier, uh, but instead uh, this new one coming from the user. Another thing you talked about too was how, I guess the reference or not necessarily reference, but like different components of things. So for example, the grammaticality of a sentence and then what words refer to, how those can sort of come from different places. And in thinking about your Patel Pavlik example and your example of let's actually draw a figure in, in a programming language and then refer to Southwest and Northeast or something like this, there's a way in which, of course, the figure itself is new. It might be analogous to something the L on the scene in its training data, but presumably it's still able to, I, I have trouble saying make that inference because I'm trying to be careful about, you know, how much identity I, I attribute here. But the fact that Southeast, Northwest, these directions that they have particular relations to one another is certainly something that is going to be found and picked up on in the training data. And so I'm wondering like, what is what is the minimal set of resources we can use to describe cases like this? Because agency and all of that, you know, if we have to use it to describe things, I, I guess one can, but it still feels like in, in a case like this, there is a, a more minimal set of resources that could kind of describe and predict this sort of behavior. Yeah. So I just sketched a way that bibliotechnists, it's sort of hardcore bibliotechnists could accommodate these examples without attributing any attitudes uh, to the uh, LLM. And now you're, you're thinking about a middle road. So going a little bit beyond bibliotechnism, but attributing some kind of different uh, capabilities to the LLM that doesn't uh, go all the way to full agency, but would still make sense of these particular examples of derivative ref of, of novel reference. And I think that's a very important uh, approach that still needs to be explored more. I will say, I, I want to say, like, we're not uh, strongly against the idea that LLMs are agents. In this paper, we're sort of exploring the conditional thing, you know, how far can we go uh, with bibliotechnism, but I don't want to sound here as though I'm dead set against uh, the idea and doing everything I can to defend against the idea that they do have beliefs, desires, and intentions. I think one upshot of considering these examples might be, you know, what why are we going to such lengths to provide alternative paraphrases of them that don't attribute beliefs, desires, and intentions to them? And especially if you have uh, this view of beliefs, desires, and intentions that I mentioned earlier, that really what, what it takes to attribute them to, uh, uh, you know, for it to be appropriate to attribute them is just for them to provide good explanations of the behavior uh, of the entity to which you're uh, attributing uh the attitudes to, uh, then it seems like, well, why not? I mean, you know, maybe it'd be helpful in this kind of case. And maybe this is a kind of case among many others that uh, might allow us to give a better uh, explanation. So I think 
what what you've just described of you know well there are some features of its representational space that allow it to uh, extrapolate to this new new case because of features that are present in the data that's a sophisticated and interesting kind of middle level where it's as it were reasoning by analogy uh, between these cases I'm not sure exactly how that would work in the case of the novel names where there isn't necessarily some kind of semantic similarity between the name and other things but we've actually seen some cases where it does seem to be like it has a reason why it chose that name. So you notice that uh, Marion Starlight has this name Starlight and uh, a friend just sent me an example yesterday, a philosopher here at, at UT, um, of another case where it, where the invented name, the LLM actually explained the invented name as having descriptive properties uh, that uh, relate to the individual it chose. So it cho- it's claims that it chose uh, a star-based name for an astronomer uh, because of its connection to uh, stars. And so in that case, it might actually look quite similar to the, di- the reasoning by analogy with the diagram that you're describing. I think basically what I want to say now is uh, I really don't know. We're still trying to explore this kind of paradigm and how it responds to the paradigm. I've probably said more than is wise on something that might be public uh, already, but uh, we're still learning about uh, how it's doing this inventing a name thing. And we just want to sort of put forward this paradigm as a way to think about uh, what the limits of uh, the derivative reference kind of, you know, and bibliotechnism in general, and what the prospects of uh, bibliotechnism are. Yeah, and I guess another another important thing to call out here is how much LLMs often, especially because of things like reinforcement learning with human feedback, are really good at following along with what they are being prompted to do, right? And that's kind of in your case of describe a historical figure. We have, of course, the, the famous Blake Lemoine example that many people kind of interpreted as, well, he's just sort of pushing it in the direction to say things about how it has mental states. And that's also another really interesting example, I think, to analyze in this kind of case. But again, it's like not just the LLM and its training data, but then it's also at like real inference time. You know, you think of in-context learning as one example of this, but like what the person who is an interlocutor in this case is providing the LLM with and how that sort of interacts with and, and motivates what it is then going to talk about, refer to, and so on. Yeah, I think I think that's a big question for us is um, where are the names that it's inventing coming from? Why is it inventing those names? You know, how is that sensitive to features of the prompt? How much is that because there's someone uh, on the other side uh, watching what we're doing and, uh, you know, thinking, oh, you know, this is a new game. We want to make sure it learns this game. Um, is there a whole part of the Internet where people are playing this kind of game? Uh, in a certain sort of way that it that it knows about. And so it's uh, responding to these prompts in a certain way. I think these are all interesting questions about this task. Yeah, well, I think this was a really good summary of the paper and some of the questions here. And I, I also, I, I really like the, the rigor and the distinctions you make in this paper. I think that's something that you mentioned kind of previous conflations that have gone on here. And so I'm really glad that you're sort of bringing in what you're bringing to this discussion. Before Before we end, are there, I guess, any sort of particular questions that you're hoping people who are sort of interested in this intersection of questions about AI, questions about the philosophy of language grounding, that you would hope people begin to think about or pursue that we haven't brought up so far? Uh, It seems like there are millions. Um, I mean, I I think uh, some of my confusions, I'm sure, have come up 
uh, already. I think there are lots of really, really interesting questions that we haven't really begun to talk about, about the relationship between the way that philosophers are thinking about meaning, uh, which is in terms of, as we've said, you know, kind of words can refer to objects in the world. And uh, also relatedly, expressions like is blue, you know, maybe they refer to or they express, you know, certain kind of higher order properties. So philosophers have really thought a lot about uh, meanings as uh, sort of entities outside the head. Uh, but a lot of the investigation, or not only, but, you know, that's been one tradition of philosophers thinking about meaning. But a lot of the discussions in, uh, in, about LLMs have focused on questions about the structure of their conceptual space, about uh, the nature of the sort of scales it represents or things like that. And I think there are hard questions about what that tells us about the nature of meaning. I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. Lots of people have noticed that, that, that uh, you know, there are hard questions about uh, the nature of meaning, but also bringing together what we know about the, as it were, psychological representations that are present in the uh, LLM and what that tells us about the meanings of the expressions it's using. Um, and I think we can do more to try to bridge that gap. I think there's a lot of really important work to be done just in translating, just in trying to get these two universes of careful reflection on meaning to try to speak to each other. Um, and in a way, Kyle and my paper, I mean, we've done that because we're talking to each other, but we are the paper itself is not really adding to that. And I think that's a really deep and uh, important issue because there is a lot of important work that philosophers have done on, on the nature of meaning that I hope will be brought into contact with uh, these uh, questions and so that we can make progress more quickly, basically, by building on what's known, but maybe not accessible to people in other disciplines. Yeah, this is this is a really exciting intersection that I am also following very closely, and I'm excited to see more people say things about and explore. And I think this is a good place for us to come to a close. So Harvey, I really appreciated the conversation today. I am a big fan of your work. I'm excited to see how this paper comes out in, in its final form. And I want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thanks so much, Daniel. That's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. And if you like this, really the best thing you can do is to leave me a review and to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting. You can also subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest from The Gradient, to receive emails whenever we have new podcasts, newsletters, articles, then you can subscribe to us on Substack, where you'll get email notifications for everything.